This is honestly one of the craziest things I've ever heard. But uh, maybe you could just imagine it in your mind. But uh, there's a prophet of God, which would have been like a pastor, an evangelist back in the Old Testament. And, and he, you think about what they did back then, the prophets, they would go out into the streets of the town and they would preach and they would tell all the things that, that the people are doing wrong, how they've turned their hearts from God. And, and, and he's basically calling them back to God back into that relationship with God. And, and that's what the prophet said. So you can imagine one day when this prophet named Hosea is kneeling down and he's crying out to God, praying, what do you want me to say today? What do you want me to do today? And God speaks to Hosea and he says, Hosea, I want you to go take a wife. Her name is Gomer and she's a prostitute. And I want you, yeah, we laugh out loud, right? And I want you to go marry. And I can imagine Hosea going, are you kidding me, God? Her name is Gomer? I mean, that's like the worst name in the world. And, and, and then he gets on to the part about being a prostitute. But, but Gomer, really? And a prostitute? I mean, you can just imagine what this would have been like for Hosea. This is what he's preaching against. This is what he's railing against. And now God wants him to go into the town and find a woman named Gomer that's a prostitute and take as his wife. And so I just have this picture in my mind that he's walking down the streets, and it had to take him several days to get up the nerve to do this. Walking down the street, here's all the other prostitutes walking around, and he's asking around, which one's Gomer? Which one? And they all know Gomer. Gomer's right down there. And, and so as he would approach these women, they all had, had perfume on them. They had them around their neck, and they would, they would douse themselves with the little splashes of perfume. That was kind of their, their identity because they wanted to smell good. And so here he gets closer to, to Gomer, and she splashes a little on. He goes, oh, no, 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 you've got the wrong idea here, wrong idea. I'm not here to, you know, that I, I actually want to marry you. Now, just imagine Gomer going, what? Oh, who, who are you and what's going on? Maybe she did know who he was. I, I don't know. But here Hosea finds Gomer the prostitute, and he has to talk her into marrying him. And he literally would have had to say, Gomer, you won't believe me, but God told me to come and find you and take you as my wife. And, and now listen, Gomer, I've, I'm not rich, but I have a little bit of money, and I've got a house, and, and you won't have to live on the streets. You won't live this lifestyle anymore. I mean, you can leave this life, and I'll give you a much better life. And, and after a while, Gomer would have been like, okay, man, that sounds good. And so she goes with Hosea, and they get married. They have a child. They've got the happy little family. They've got their home, and, and he's got his, his profit business. He's going out and doing all that, and she's at home taking care of their first child. And, and after a little bit, everything's going good, but then Gomer is gone one night when he gets home, and he's like, oh, where'd she go? And she's gone for a couple days, and she comes back, and after a little while, he finds out that she's pregnant, but it's not, with, it's not his. And sure enough, they have two more kids, and neither of them are his. And so he's starting to get a little frustrated with Gomer. And, and Gomer, he, although he loves her, and, and he's doing the best he can to honor her and to, and to raise the three kids the best he can, but after a while, she would disappear, be gone for a couple days, disappear, be gone for a month. He, he didn't know what to do. And at one point, she just left. She was gone. And you have to go, Gomer, what, what are you doing 
I mean, you lived this life on the streets and you were rescued from it. And you were brought to a, a good home and, and a man that loved you. And yet she could not break free from her old life. And, and, and what I would call that is being double-minded or double-hearted. She, she wanted this, but she couldn't quite get out of this. And, and her mind was in two places. Her heart was in two places. And James, Jesus' half-brother, actually calls it being double-minded. I, I want to read to you what he says in James 1, 7 through 8. He's talking about people that pray and yet don't believe. And he says, such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Listen, their loyalty is divided between God in the world. And they are unstable in everything they do. The NIV says such a person is double-minded. <laughs> now, Tim Keller, a famous theologian, he says this about being double-minded. He says, being double-minded is to be double-souled or double-hearted, to exist with divided loyalties and allegiances. Double-minded people are easily swayed by doubt or uncertainty which is the opposite of a follower of God. A follower of God is single-minded, single-hearted, is one purpose, and that's to love Jesus and be committed to Jesus. Now, Jesus addresses this several times in his ministry. One time in Matthew 15, he's talking to the religious leaders of the day, and he says this, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What they're saying is one thing, but their hearts are clear over here. They're, they're in a different place that's being double-minded, double-hearted. And, and then Jesus has this positive spin on it when they ask him, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's single-mindedness. That's whole heartedness. And it's a much healthier way to live. It's what Jesus wants from us. It's the way God created us, is to have a heart for him. He should be the center of that. Now, I believe, now I'm not saying we live in the worst culture ever, that everything's bad, whatever, but we do live in a culture that, man, it is really hard to be single-minded about anything. I mean, we're drawn away, we're distracted so easily, and I'm not just talking about cell phones and computers and, and televisions where our minds always, but we live in a world where it's really hard to keep our minds focused on one thing. Our thoughts race all over the place, and, and our faith, our, our relationship with Jesus is often kind of an afterthought in all of that. And, you know, a lot of us, we come on Sunday and... and we get led in worship, and it's easy to be focused and, and good, and then we walk out, and we head to the village, or we go to something, and pretty soon our minds are all over the place. We get distracted so easy. It's, it's kind of just the world we live in, right? Well, our mind, <laughs> our mind is in one place, and our heart is in another place, and this makes us double-minded. As Jesus, as James said, divided between God and in the world. And quite often that's how we live our lives, this double-minded way. And it's, it's a very unhealthy way spiritually and, and also mentally and physically. It's unhealthy to, to be thinking if you're sitting at work and yet you're thinking about surfing, that's being double-minded. I would never do that. That would never happen. 
Sometimes I do, surprisingly, but it's being done. It's actually not healthy for our minds and our bodies. We should be in the place that we are in, and to practice single-mindedness is, is basically practicing being in the presence of God. It, it's practicing doing one thing at a time, and it's what God calls us to do as followers of him. When I was only, I think I was 24 years old, actually. I was 24. I got hired by an insurance company to sell insurance. And, and the sole reason I went to this company is because they said, hey, you can make a lot of money doing this. My 24-year-old self said, I'm in. And so they trained me, and they sent me out into the world. I had 10 months of training in a classroom. They teach you all this stuff. They teach you how to do every aspect of the business, and then they send you back to where you're from. For me, that was Kansas, and, and I started knocking on doors. I sold business insurance. You'd knock on the door, and I had all this knowledge. I knew all these things, and I would knock on the door just ready to spew it, and I'd say, hey, I'm Chris. I'm with Federate Insurance, and they'd go, slam, 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 no, no. Uh, that was the majority of what I heard. Every once in a while, you'd do something good, and but I, I remember after a while of doing that job, I really liked the money, but I didn't like the job. I, and, and basically, I realized after a while that, that, man, although there were some things I liked and I liked the money part of it, but my heart was not in it. Uh, my life was, in a way, was double-hearted. This isn't what I want to do the rest of my life. Now, my wife wanted me to do it the rest of my life because she liked the money, but I couldn't keep doing it because this, this lifestyle was not what I desired. And so when we think about being double-hearted or double-minded, it, it's, it's your mind is one place and your heart is in the same place. Now, I want to talk about Jesus' story he tells us in Matthew chapter 25. We call it the parable of the talents. That's what I always heard of it as. Depending on which version you read, it uses different things. But the talent uh, that that is the uh, a sum of money. And, and so in this story, Jesus tells that there's three servants, and he gives each of them a different amount of money. And one of them, he gives one talent, one he gives two talents, one he gives five talents. And there's no, well, we don't know why he gives one more than the other. I mean, we could, we could theorize and all that stuff, but it really doesn't matter. Uh, but the good thing, the one thing we need to know is the talent was worth a lot of money. I mean, in today's world, if someone gave us a talent, it would be worth something like maybe a million dollars. It'd be a lot of money and not, not something we're normally going to get. So these servants were handed a talent or two talents or five talents. That's a ton of money. And then the, the master leaves. And, and so here, the, the servant and the one servant just got one talent. And he gets the one talent and he takes it and he basically looks at it, thinks about his his job with the master and he goes I'm not sure what to do with this he's a little bit afraid of the master so he literally digs a hole in the ground and he buries it and he, and he puts it in the ground and he waits for the master to come back and and here's when the master returns this is what happens it says then the servant with one bag of silver or a talent came and said master I knew you were a harsh man harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate now listen to him he says I was afraid I would lose your money so I hid it in the earth but look here's your money back now it's not a bad thing right I'm looking at this going hey if if I 
had this fear of losing it. You know, I got all this money and I knew the master wanted it back. Bearing, it's not a bad idea, right? But the master's response to this is kind of shocking in some ways. It says, but the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant, gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. And then he ordered, take the money away from this servant and give it to the one that has ten bags of silver. And, and then he goes on and he says, and from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. And, and so, so the master's saying that this guy wasn't even, he did nothing. He, he just buried the money. He's angered. The words are, are tough. And, and then in verse 30 he says, now throw this useless servant out in the utter darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The message says, and get rid of this play it safe who won't go out on a limb. Now, I don't know about you, but those words kind of hurt. I don't want to be a play it safe, right? I don't want to be someone that won't take a risk. But here the master is looking at this man who didn't lose the money, but he didn't do anything with it. He just did nothing. And I would say when I look at this and you go, well, you have a one-talent man that now became a zero-talent man. And, and just so you know, the word talent that we use today actually comes from this parable. That, that, that's where we get this idea of a talent. So when we think of, hey, I'm really talented at this or at that, it actually comes from this. And, and so we kind of change the meaning from money to this is what God's given me. These are the gifts that God has given me. And how am I going to use them? Am I going to bury them? Am I going to hide them? And I look at this and I go, although the servant, uh, he was a servant of the master, he was not wholeheartedly committed to the master. That's the big difference here. He was a servant. He worked for him. But he wasn't wholeheartedly committed to him. And for you and I, claiming to be a follower of Jesus and yet not being a wholehearted follower of Jesus, there's a big difference as Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, the other part of this story of the talents is there's a two-talent and a five-talent servant. And, and these guys, it says they got the money, and the two-talent guy looked at it and said, I know what to do with this, and he went out and he went to work. And, and he literally invested it, and he got double the money. So he took two talents and he put it to work and he ended up with four. The other guy gets five talents and he does the exact same thing. It's like they knew exactly what to do and they went out and they went to work and they doubled their investment. They didn't waste any time. Uh, they didn't seem to be afraid and they just did it. And now the master comes back and he calls them to him and this is what he says. Now the master was full of praise. Well done my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I'll give you money. We'll give you money or give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. I love that. Let's celebrate what has happened here. It's you took what I gave you and you put it to work. There was no fear. It was just, yes, this is what we do. And, and I take this and I go, this is exactly what Jesus was asking, right? But love me with all of your heart, with all of your soul, all of your mind. That's what these two servants had in common. They, they loved the master. They knew the master. They knew how to take what he gave them and put it to work. You can see the difference between the two here. 
And, and how when we are wholeheartedly committed compared to mm, being double-hearted, double-minded. You know, I look at the life of Paul sometimes. Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament books, and it's pretty easy to look at him and go, yeah, this guy, he did it right. I mean, he did all these good things. Uh, but what's interesting about Paul is he had this former life. In this former life, he was not a great guy, although he was a religious guy. He was not a great guy. He was, he was devoted not to God, but to following the rules. He was devoted, actually, to stopping the Christian church for a while, killing Christians. And, and I look at that, and, and before I became a believer in Jesus, and I didn't kill anybody, I, I promise. I, I wasn't trying to shut down the Christian church. But, but when I look back at my, my life before and after, there's this giant difference. I, when I grew up, I loved, I was single-minded when it came to sports, I loved football. I loved any sport I played, and I was single-minded in that focus, and I, I was good at that because I was so huge and strong and fast, and you know, actually, I was really, I was good at it because I loved it so much. I was single-minded in my pursuit of it, and, and, then, and then all of a sudden, Jesus came into my life, and, and I went through this phase of this double-mindedness. I, I loved my old life in so many ways, and I didn't have to give it up, but it was this, this process of of adjusting to now I need to be single-minded here and it, it took a long time and I I read Paul's words in in Philippians chapter 3 where he talks about his old life and he says I once thought these things were valuable but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. See, he's, oh man, that life. And then you think about Gomer, the, the first story. She had that life, right? And, but she couldn't quite step out of it. She couldn't say, oh man, that was worthless. That was garbage. Instead, you keep one foot in and one foot in, and you have this double life. And Paul says, no, I've discarded all of that. Why? So I can know Christ, that single-mindedness. He goes on in verses 12 through 13 of Philippians 3. He says, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or I've already reached perfection, but I press on. I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. And, and I love this because Paul said, I'm not perfect, I'm not there yet, but <laughs> that's what I want. That's what I desire. That's my single-minded purpose. And Jesus is not asking for perfection. And he's simply just asking for us to love him with our whole heart, to make him the center of our lives. And, and when you think about becoming single-minded for Jesus, yet we still live in the world, don't we? <laughs> we have to go to work. We have to make money. We have families. We have all this stuff. I, I get that. But I, 
I love to read things about the mind and, and the science behind the mind. And, and one of the things that, that has become really big in the science world is single-mindedness. Not, not meaning you think about one thing all day long, but thinking about one thing at a time. But what's amazing about it is, is I, I've changed my practice of my, my time with God. I, I used to read a whole chapter of the Bible or sometimes read a whole book or whatever. And I've changed it now to, a, to a, basically a 10, 15-minute time in the morning and in the late evening where I just have a verse, sometimes a word or a phrase. And, and I sit in a place and I literally meditate on God's word that way, just one verse. And you know what I've discovered happens if I start out my day, let's say 10 minutes of just, fo you can just focus on, I need to love God with all my heart. Today, I want to love him with all my heart. And you spend 10 minutes and you keep bringing your mind back to that over and over. It's not easy. I'm just going to say it's difficult. But you meditate on that. You know what's going to happen? You're going to go to work. And while you're working, you're going to go, oh, man, that's right, I'm supposed to love God with all my heart. I, I probably shouldn't do that. I probably shouldn't say that. I might need to give that up. And, and then you do it again in the evening time, and you, you go through the same process, and then you sleep on that, and you wake up in the morning. Guess what's in your mind? I need to love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind. It's this process when we're single-minded about something for an extended period of time. That becomes our forethoughts. And that's what Jesus is asking from us, Jesus is simply asking for us to follow him wholeheartedly. Not one foot in the world, not one foot in our past, but both feet in this relationship with him. I, I want to go back to Gomer. Uh, you remember Gomer left Hosea. And you have to go, well, what's she thinking? <laughs> she, she had this, this home, this, this stable environment. She gives it up, and she goes back into the world of prostitution, and she literally becomes enslaved to another man. And I'm talking she's in shackles to another man. He owns her. And, and she's been gone for a while, and, and Hosea is taking care of the kids, doing his job, whatever. He's, he's kind of moving on with life, and then God shows up one day and says, Hosea, I want you to go back. And I want you to love Gomer again and bring her home. And I can imagine Jose was like, oh, God, what are you doing to me? Why? God says, I need you to do this. Go. <laughs> I, I want to read it to you out of Hosea 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, then the Lord said to me, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. So I bought her back. For 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. I want you to hear what he did. Hosea wasn't a rich man. He probably didn't have much. But he went around his house and he found all the money he could find, all the things he had, and he took it and he went to another man's home where his wife was enslaved to him and he bought her back. Humiliating. Horribly humiliating. But you realize that God asked Hosea to do that, not for Hosea's sake, but for our sake, because he was showing us what he was willing to do for you and I. You see, we're Gomer. We got the dumb name. We're, we're, we're Gomer. 
And we want one foot in this world. Oh, we like that world. But we got, man, this is calling. And God sends Jesus to come and pay the price for us, to pick us up out of slavery and bring us home. <laughs> Even when we're double-minded. <laughs> Even when we can't get one foot out of the world. Jesus is pursuing us wholeheartedly. And that's why he wants us to pursue him wholeheartedly. When you, you think about the story of Gomer, just keep that in your mind. And then we're going to fast forward thousands of years into Jesus' time on earth. And Jesus, last week we talked about how Jesus ate with sinners and with the tax collectors and all the bad people gathered around him. And so I can just imagine the setting that Jesus is teaching and the sinners are all gathered around him. And on the outskirts of these people is a prostitute. It's not Gomer, but it's a prostitute of that day. And around her neck, she has an alabaster jar, they called it, and it was full of perfume, just like Gomer would have had to splash on them. And in that day and time, that alabaster jar, it defined who they were. And so as as someone was walking down the street and they would see a woman with a jar around their neck of perfume, they knew that she was a prostitute, that identified her. And so here she is, kind of on the outskirts of this gathering, listening to Jesus. And as she's listening, something happened to her. And, and she begins to go, that guy, there's something about him. And something changes in her heart. And, and, and I imagine it maybe took a few days. I, I don't know. She was continuing her lifestyle. But she couldn't quit thinking about this Jesus and what he had said. And, and how she just wanted to find him again. And, and I can imagine her asking around and trying to find where he's at next. And one day she just had enough of that lifestyle. And she went looking for Jesus. And as she's asking around, someone said, oh yeah, I think he's, he's down here at this house. And the house was Simon's house. Simon was a religious leader. He was the Pharisee. And, and what had happened, there was a gathering of these Pharisees, these religious leaders. They, they all thought they were really impressive, and they invited Jesus over for dinner. They didn't invite him over because they liked him. They didn't like Jesus. They invited Jesus over to basically debunk who he was. And so they invited Jesus over. And in the middle of this gathering, you have Jesus and all the religious leaders. Sounds like the start of a joke, right? But here they are in this courtyard of this home. A prostitute with her jar around her neck is looking for Jesus. She comes to the home and there she sees him. And with no fear, she walks right into the home of a Pharisee who would have absolutely despised and hated her. Walked right into his home fell down at the feet of Jesus and began to weep and cry. And her tears washed Jesus' feet and her hair dried them. And then she took her bottle of perfume and she dumped it on her feet, on his feet, like anointing his feet. <laughs> it, it, that perfume was incredibly expensive. A, a prostitute bought that, but they, they had to, keep it tight because it was expensive. You couldn't just keep rebuying it. And what she did is she dumped that entire bottle out. In other words, she was saying, this is who I was. And she left it all right there at the feet of Jesus. That's who I was, and I am no more. 
She dumped her whole identity, her whole life right there. And what's interesting about what she did is when Jesus showed up at that house, a typical house in those days, if you were invited over, they would wash your feet, they would kiss your cheeks, they would anoint your head with oil, you were an honored guest. But when Jesus came, they didn't do any of that. The religious leaders basically just ignored him. And then here comes this woman, a sinful woman who they're looking down at, and she pours herself, she washes his feet, kisses his feet, anoints his feet with oil, does all the things that you're supposed to do to honor him. (laughs) I look at that, and you see men who honor him with their lips, but their hearts are so far away. And a woman that was willing to pour herself out, wholeheartedly committed to Jesus. And the truth is, Jesus isn't concerned about our past. He's not concerned about our knowledge. He simply wants us to follow him wholeheartedly. Be wholeheartedly committed to him. And I'm going to have Megan, if you'd come on up. I want Megan just to play for us. And uh, all I'm asking right now is, for you just be alone with Jesus. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what your commitment, if you're one foot in, one foot out, single-minded, double-minded, that's between you and God. But in this time, I just want you to be quiet and just seek him out. And just imagine that life of being wholeheartedly devoted to him. Just bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you love us. That you wholeheartedly pursue us. My prayer for us as your followers is that that we would wholeheartedly love you. Wholeheartedly follow you. In the midst of this crazy, busy world we live in, Lord, I pray that you would be at the forefront of our minds and our hearts. And this morning, I just proclaim that we do love you. And we thank you for being our Savior and pursuing us and buying us back. And we just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.